maybe I didn't push it hard enough. Nope. I've got a green light. Let's just take a minute here and just kind of, you know, breathe in deep and just kind of, kind of relax a little bit. It's been uh, busy days, hasn't it? There are things that going on. We've been to concerts and, uh, you know, you do things with grandkids and, and a lot of things going on that are part of what we would call the U.S. traditional Christian. One of our missionaries, or Christmas, one of our missionaries in South America, they have what's called chocolatada down in Peru. That's what they do. And they have pantone. And anybody noticed pantone bread? It's kind of a not-so-sweet fruit bread, and you'll see it a lot like in places like Ross. It's everywhere. It's very big in South America. And so that's part of their tradition. And traditions are a little different in places like Trinidad, where our missionaries are in the middle of summer in 95 degrees. Uh, and heavy rain has a way of kind of changing what we would call our feel uh, for Christmas. And we have all of these things, but I want to take about 20 minutes for us just to kind of stop and exhale and come back to the center of what this is all about. And if you have your Bibles, and there may be some down in front of you in the, uh, by the hymn books, but the Gospel of John, chapter 1, is where I would like to take the Christmas story from. Now, we're familiar with Mary and Joseph, the wise men, the angels, no room in the end. We're familiar with all of, of those things, but the Apostle John, who was one of the closest of the disciples to Jesus tells the story in a different way. And that's what I would like us to look at for a few moments because he doesn't start... Now, the birth of Jesus was in this way, as some of the gospel records would record, and they're wonderful. But John starts it differently in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning... He said, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the word Word is capitalized, and it's capitalized for a reason, because that's the name he's using for Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and so when we start the Christmas story as John tells the Christmas story, we don't start 2,000 years ago in the little town of Bethlehem. We start eons ago, eternity ago, and John begins it with, in the beginning was the Word. He's talking about the Lord Jesus there. And the center of everything that we hold dear, not only in this season, but in all that we believe, the center is is Christ. Everything 
everything that we hope for beyond this life, everything that we trust in for eternity beyond, all centers around the person of Christ. This morning, uh, Wanda and I usually have coffee for an hour or so in the morning, and uh, this morning she said, let me read you something from one of our missionaries, another one of our TBM missionaries, uh, Mirko Franzini and his wife Paola are serving the Lord in Sermide, Italy. We've been to their house and they've been to ours. And he, he made a simple post and it was this. No decorations. It's still Christmas. No tree. It's still Christmas. No presents. It's still Christmas. No Jesus. No Christmas. And it's true, isn't it? What a simple way uh, of stating a profound truth. Everything that we hope for beyond the grave is found in Christ and Christ alone. Not in religion. Not in good works. Those things aren't bad. But there's no hope in those things. And so as we come to celebrate the birth of Christ tomorrow, we're looking at the core of everything on which eternity is based. One and I went to a funeral service last Sunday from a dear friend of ours. His name was Max Bird. Max trusted the Lord when he was a child and has served the Lord faithfully. And uh, a week ago, this past Sunday, he was in a Christmas music at large church, probably five, six hundred people in that congregation. And he was in that musical, and he was uh, one of the principal characters in the Christmas story. And it could be a man named Zacharias. We, we didn't hear all about that, and it, it could have been uh, a man named Simeon. But he was in that program and served, and uh, Monday night he went to sleep, and he woke up in heaven. And no one saw that coming. How important, uh, as, as we gathered together with hundreds of uh, believers on Sunday, how important it was that everything that was focused on beyond Max, and even more than Max, was the person on whom his faith was centered. The person whose birth we celebrate tomorrow. So the story, even reading two verses, the story of the birth of Jesus began way before Bethlehem. In the beginning was the Word in John chapter 1, verse 1. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. You see, Jesus wasn't... 
yes, he was born, and we celebrate his birthday, but Jesus has existed eternally as God. He is co-equal to God. He is co-eternal with God. He is co-identical with God. So he didn't become the Messiah. He was the Messiah, and he was the Son of God from eternity past, that in a way that only God could do, God the Son was born to this earth. Why? Why would he do that? We wonder. Well, there are two, a couple, uh, two or three verses that I would like us to see also in John chapter 1. Because we find one of the reasons he did what he did, to leave the glories of heaven, and as only God could do, uh, we read in places in Scripture, he was reduced to almost nothing in Mary's womb and grew to a baby and was born. You say, well, that's impossible. Mary asked when the, the angel appeared to her, how can this be? And without giving lots of specifics, which our small minds could never understand, he just said, this with God nothing's impossible that's the answer with God nothing is impossible so it happened this baby whose birth we celebrate tomorrow existed from eternity past and was a part of creation as we just read and then this in him was life this is verse 4 of John chapter 1 In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, let's understand what he is and is not saying there. He's not saying in him was life like you would say, well, in Ron is is life. Ron's alive. No, no. He is saying in him was life giving life. Not just He was alive as a human, and he was, but he was perfect and sinless. But in him was life-giving life, and yet he was human. He could be tired. He could be sad. He could be thirsty. All of those things. He was human, except this difference. In him was life-giving life. We can't do that. You and I can't do that. A doctor can't do that. A doctor can extend life. A doctor can... uh, We've we've been the recipient of the wisdom of great doctors uh, uh, through our almost 50 years of marriage, and God has been good through them, but they can't give life. They can extend it. Jesus, as we saw, and we read through the Gospels, Jesus himself had within himself to give life. And that, not just physical life, but more importantly, spiritual life. Our hope is solid in Christ because he is a life 
life-giving Savior. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. If we look across the world today, we see that uh, there are many causes in the world, some noble, some not so much. And yet we find only Christ is the one who can promise blessing in life today, even in the difficult times, and then blessing for eternity. And that's because in him was life. Life giving life. And we celebrate his birth tomorrow. There's something else. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we read really John's very condensed version of the Christmas story. Here's all he said in John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word, the eternal son of God, God from eternity past, became a baby, was born and lived his life perfectly, was nailed to a cross, was buried, he died, he was buried, he rose again, and because he, in him was life-giving life, the Father raised him from the dead, and now he forever lives in heaven to prove that because he lives, you and I can live as well. He became flesh and dwelt among us. That's identification. And just so that we would know that it was true, the Lord spoke through the prophets 700 years before Jesus was even born. And we read in Isaiah seven fourteen that Jesus would be born of a virgin 700 years before it happened. And he would have a name, not like Jesus, which was his name, but a name that would describe who he was. And that was one of the songs that we sang. O come, O come, Emmanuel, which means God with us. When we trust Christ as our Savior, we understand that he knows us because he went through what we did. He went through things like betrayal and suffering terribly and unjustly, things that never should have happened. He understands us. We're told in John chapter 11 that Jesus wept. He understands what it is to lose someone. This is a a Savior who in every way identifies with us. And yet we're also told in Isaiah 9, 6, again, seven centuries before Jesus was ever born, his name shall be called Wonderful and Counselor. Those are our nice names. And then this, the Mighty God. So we have to, to, to remind ourselves that that we can't just look at the baby in the manger as, as very beautiful as all of those scenes are that we, that we see around, and, and they remind us of 
the sacrifice of Christ and the humility of Christ in coming down to this earth. But we must never forget he's the mighty God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. How? We will never understand. It's just that scripture says it was so. And then this. In John 1.18, it says this, No one has seen God at any time. Here's another reason that Jesus came. The only begotten Son, that's Jesus, the Word, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him or He has revealed Him to us. We know God because we understand the Jesus that is unfolded for us in the Word of God, and it's His birth that we celebrate tomorrow. Well, some would ask, okay, but why is He called the Word? capital W-O-R-D. Why didn't John just say Jesus? In the beginning, Jesus was. Instead of in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I can illustrate this. Now, can you tell what I was just thinking? Any mind readers? I wouldn't believe you. If you said you were. You can't because thoughts are invisible. I was thinking, you all look really nice tonight and it's great to be here. I really was. I didn't make that up. That's what I was thinking. Now, how do you know that I was thinking that? Because I just told you. How did I tell you? With words. Words give expression to invisible thought. And we read in John 1.18, no one has seen God, it's speaking of God the Father, nobody's seen God the Father at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him, he has declared him. That's revelation. Jesus is to God who is invisible. No man has seen God at any time. Though he's a person, no man has seen him, has seen God the Father. Jesus is to God what words are to thought, the expression of things that we otherwise would not know. Jesus came to show us the heart of God. And the heart of God expressed in a verse we all know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is to God what words are to thought, the revelation, the unfolding of things that we otherwise would not know. We celebrate tomorrow the birth of that child who is the almighty God who
who unfolds to us the loving heart of God who would give his only son for us so that we, through simple childlike faith in his death on Calvary's cross for us, we could have eternal life. That is the ultimate gift. The song that Krista sang, Mary, did you know that your little boy would one day walk on water? Did you know that your little boy would save our sons and daughters? And he went on to say, do you know that the son that you delivered in birth will soon deliver you? That's what Jesus did for us. And that is what we celebrate tomorrow. Not just a baby born in a manger, though the story is remarkable all by itself, but is even more remarkable is what happened after that that is ours because he gave up the glory of heaven and was reduced to common man except sinless one day nailed to a cross, lived the perfect life. That's the Savior whose birth we celebrate. One verse that I would like to to close with, at the end of the Gospel of John, John talked about identification. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he talked about uh, revelation that Jesus reveals the heart of God to us and he did it in his own flesh but he closed his letter the gospel of John well actually the next to the last chapter in John twenty thirty one, with kind of an invitation And we need to remind ourselves that this is the truth. Talking about all that's written in the Bible about Jesus and all that isn't written because books could never contain all that Jesus did. But he said in John 20, 31, but these are written, what John wrote about the word, Jesus. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is the greatest gift. We get to give gifts, and probably as we get older, maybe gifts aren't held in in, in quite the same esteem that we did when we were 5 or even 15 or even 25. This is the greatest gift. And it is the truest gift in every sense. And if we own that gift by simple faith in what Christ did for us on the cross, then we have Christmas. No Jesus, no Christmas. Everything else is optional. Isn't it great? Isn't it great what we have because of Christ and that as we leave this place after a a busy, somewhat of a busy holiday season, that we get to focus 
maybe a little bit quietly tonight and, and even tomorrow morning in whatever your uh, Christmas traditions are to take time to read just a little bit of the Christmas story and to thank God for what he gave us through his son. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for our time uh, tonight. For each part of the, the program, we're so grateful for all of the work that went into the program. Thank you for Cindy's work in, in putting this together. Thank you for those who are part of the, the music, whether the, the hymns that we sang or special music. We're so grateful for this time. But, Father, most of all, we're grateful for your Son, the Word, who was made flesh. And you love us, and you show us the heart of your Father through your life, your death, and your resurrection. Thank you for the unspeakable gift that we have of salvation by faith through Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Music was a blessing. I want to say, though, I've been really missing Soren in those mission moments, and I'm looking forward to him coming back um, next Sunday. I um, also want to mention there's a prayer list in your bulletin. I'd like to add to that uh, Pastor Rick and Deb Malone. Deb Malone has been struggling with cancer for years, and it may have come back. Um, Ron, would you share just a few words about that? Let's pray right now and ask the Lord to bless our time together and ask the Lord to bless Rick and Deb. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that we have together. Father, we do ask that you would bless Deb with a good report from the doctors. Father, thank you for them and their testimony in the community that they serve in. Father, bless Rick. Um, just give him peace and help him to be a comfort to uh, Deb. Thank you for Deb and the testimony she has been to so many people, Father. Bless her, strengthen her, Father. And give them a special uh, sense of your presence even today. And I uh, want to thank you in advance for what you're going to do with regard to that. In Jesus' name. Bless our time here in your word this morning. Uh, keep me from saying anything I should not say. May our response to what is proclaimed be honoring to you. 
and um, may the, what is proclaimed be honoring to you as well. In Jesus' name also we pray, amen. Acts chapter 2, those verses that Charles read for us, um, uh, picking up today in the book of Acts, last Sunday the message was a message that came, uh, was about the message that came to the shepherds, a message that accompanied the gift of God's Son. And uh, Cindy mentioned to me when she was getting ready to prepare the bulletin today that it was the same chapter and the same verses, but it was in a different book. But it occurred to me that it was the same author, Luke, (laughs) and the same chapter, chapter 2 and verses 41 through 47 that we were in last Sunday morning, but it was a different book, the book of the Gospel of Luke. And here we are in Acts 2, 41 through 47. The title of this message is The Church Alive. If you're a note taker, there's that on the other side of the prayer page for you. Um, what we're looking at and what what uh, Charles has read for us, really, if, if you followed along as he read, you'd see it's a picture of a spirit-led church. Just a week ago, I was speaking with someone that's part of this church family, and they were sharing with me that they saw, uh, I'm paraphrasing what they said to me, they see North Valley Bible Church in this little section of Scripture. And it just blessed my heart. It's not the first time I have heard similar things about this church. And it's just a blessing to hear those things. But that's what we're going to be looking at today, marks of a Holy Spirit-led church. These few words about this, this first century church inform the 21st century church. They tell us of the priorities and the power and the participation and the persistence of a spirit-led church. And I just want to dig in here to this message right off the bat with not much fanfare in advance or any illustrations to the first point of this message, the priorities of the church. Look at verses 41 through 42. So then, those who who had received his word were baptized, and that day They were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Here's a Holy Spirit-led church, and it's marked by a devotion to the right priorities. Hey, It's marked by a devotion to the right priorities. 3,000 new believers. 3,000 people given new life in Christ. That's a whole lot of energy in one place, isn't it? Can you remember the day that you were first saved? I can remember the day I was first saved. There was a whole lot of energy in one place. I couldn't even explain that energy. Imagine how much energy is here in this one place. There are so many things that these believers could be putting their time and effort and resources into, but they should not be done at the expense of these few things that should have priority. They have a devotion to the right priorities. We read in verse 41 the results of gospel preaching. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. What happens when the gospel is preached and people respond in faith? They get saved, right? They get saved. They come to faith in Christ. And the apostles were devoted to their call, the fulfilling of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Uh, Jesus, we read of Jesus saying to them, uh, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, and teaching them to obey all the things that I commanded, have commanded you, and lo, I am with you even into the end of the age. 
So the apostles were devoted to their call. They're fulfilling that. And Jesus is devoted to his church. There were about 3,000 souls. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus is devoted to the building of his church. In verse 42, we begin to read about the activities and the effects of this church, of the church. What happens when the gospel takes hold? What should we see in a Holy Spirit-directed church, a Holy Spirit-led church? It says they were continually devoting themselves, or they continued steadfastly. They devoted themselves. Just a word about devotion here, and then four things that this church was devoted to that are just listed for us. Devotion. <laughs> devotion would be loyalty or enthu- loyalty with enthusiasm, right? This word devotion. They attended to these things. They were earnest for them. They continued in them. Because Jesus lives, this church is alive. And it continues to be. The church continues to be a living organism because Jesus lives. They continued in these things. They were committed to them, constantly diligent in them. When I first got saved, you could not have kept me away from the church. You could not have barred the doors and kept me out of there. That's where I wanted to be. I wanted to be where God's people were. I wanted to be where God's word was being proclaimed. I wanted to be there. You couldn't have kept me out of there when I first got saved. Could you imagine what it was like for these 3,000 people? 3,120 people. What a time, hey? And it says they devoted themselves. This is a voluntary devotion brought about through the new birth they have in Christ. New passions and desires. This is an unforced, personal, and corporate eagerness to meet together. Now there are these that's that's the word about the devotion they have. Now there's this fourfold commitment they have, four priorities that the early church was marked by as they were led by the Holy Spirit. And the first one would be they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The great subject of their teaching would have been the person of Jesus Christ, wouldn't it have been? It would have been Jesus. They couldn't have got enough of hearing more about Jesus. Ron, you mentioned uh, when you have those special times with God. And in those, isn't it when you're, you're in His Word and you're really sensing God's presence and you're learning more about Jesus? It's a joy to do that. There's this church that's alive and, and, and they're devoted to hearing more about Jesus. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves, as first century church did, to hearing the Word of God taught. This was not a devotion to a self-help gospel. It wasn't that. It wasn't a devotion to a prosperity gospel. It wasn't that. And we could go on with what it wasn't, right? A man-centered, man-made gospel. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostles' teaching was in line with the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And today we have the 27 books of the New Testament giving us the body of truth that was handed down even to us. And we are to be devoted to learning from those 27 books and from the 39 books of the Old Testament as well. There's no... It's understandable why Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable, profitable 
for teaching. For teaching. All Scripture is profitable for teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to sound teaching. Well, not only that, and we're going to touch on that again in a little bit here, not only were they devoted to the apostles' teaching, look at verse 42 again, and to fellowship. And I'd ask you to take special note of just a couple little words there. This is, this is the New American Standard, and it reads this way. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Those words, and to, I think are important little words. Very important. They did not devote themselves to mere intellectual pursuit. The doctrines that they would be taught are only truly learned in the community of the church. I am more convinced of that now than I ever have been. The apostles' teaching that they were to learn would only truly be learned in the community of the local church. You separate the teaching from the church, and you get weird stuff going on. Separate the church from the teaching, and you get other weird stuff going on. You can't separate these two things. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, thanks for that amen, and to the fellowship, and to the truths learned in Scripture are the truths that are meant to be lived out. They're not dead words on a page, but living and active. They are not stale and dry or irrelevant, but transformative. It's the, it's the, it's the congregational reading, part of the congregational reading that Charles uh, guided us through this morning. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In some ways, they're not safe words. The teaching is not safe or powerless, but like a hammer that shatters rock. They're not harmful words, though, but there are words that are like a refiner's fire. Essential priorities of a Holy Spirit-led church is sound teaching lived out in the community of the church. To focus on the first devotion to the detriment of the second is to miss the boat. The teaching, not separate from, but integral to the genuine fellowship of believers and vice versa. The fellowship, the genuine fellowship is integral to sound biblical teaching as well. You can't separate these things. To do so is to be in search of some kind of a product without the genuine passion that the church ought to have. Because God cares about people. God cares about people. So they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. This is probably a reference to sharing daily meals, after which would be some participation in the Lord's Supper. In this, there would be a regular communion service, which is a a continual reminder and a continual proclamation of the death, burial, finished work, and resurrection of Christ and his ultimate return as well. This breaking of bread would center this body of believers on the person and work of their Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going we're to have communion service next Sunday. And what does it do? 
it reminds us. It's to be a reminder to us of what he's done for us. And it's to be a proclamation of his death until he comes again. The church is still doing that today. This breaking of bread would not be the reminder of some other religious figure or any other religious figure, not a pope, not a pastor, not a preacher, not a congregate, no other person, but the person of Jesus Christ is is the body of believers to be centered on, and this breaking of bread would center this body of believers on the person and work of their Savior. And they were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. A devotion to prayer, steadfastness in prayer. Have you ever noticed, I have, how prayer leaves the petty behind? Have you ever noticed that? How our communication with God raises our minds and our hearts onto higher ground, especially when we meet together to do it? And we can hear in another brother or sister in Christ their growth in the Lord or their sweet fellowship they had with the Lord in the last week. And it ministers to your own heart. Look, guys, I'm going to say it. This is a plug for Wednesday night prayer meeting. Come out. We're having a sweet time, and it would even get sweeter with more people coming out. Come out. It's a blessing to be there. They devoted themselves to prayer. A true mark of a spirit-led church is this, a devotion to prayer, not just private prayer, but corporate prayer, praying together. It is the spirit-led church that has this unhindered access to God in prayer. No place else is this the case. What a privilege we have. There is no other body that that could claim this thing. It is the Spirit-led church that has this unhindered access to God in prayer. It's a privilege. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Spirit-led people, a Spirit-led church, they are people and and it is a church that knows that they stand in great need. They stand in need. Never is it more apparent than on a Sunday morning. Lord, I need you here this morning. If anything's going to happen, you're going to have to do it. Spirit-led people and a spirit-led church, is a ch- it's a church that knows that they stand in need of mercy, of grace, and of help. We need help. We're told in another place, in 1 Thessalonians 5, to pray continually. It's read this way, it reads this way, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. If you're ever wondering, what is God's will for my life, believer, brother and sister in Christ, that puts it in a nutshell. I'm to rejoice always, I'm to pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. That's pretty easy. That's pretty simple for a guy like me. I like that. They were devoted in prayer. They prayed together. And as they did those things, these four things, look what follows in verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. This spirit-led church is marked by its priorities, and it was also recognizable by this power. That's our second point. 
the recognizable presence of the power of God filled everyone with awe. The recognizable presence of the power of God in this body of believers filled everyone with awe. Everyone. The King James reads this way, and fear came upon every soul. This is reverential fear. This is awe. awe they were awestruck. A spirit-led church has a constant devotion to the essentials and as God works in and through that same church, that power of God is a cause of true reverence. True reverence. Notice verse 33, 43 again, rather. There is this sense of awe that everyone kept feeling even before the mention of what comes after that. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. I think the order is intentional there. I don't want to make too much of this little word and again, but it seems to me that the way this is written, we are to understand that the wonders and signs only added to what was already at work, namely a continuing sense of awe. The signs and wonders served only to confirm the message and added to the awe that everybody was already feeling a continual sense of. I've been in a place and seen hundreds of people come to faith in Christ at one time on more than one occasion. And when that happened, the first time I thought, is this real? Is what I just saw real? Could this really be something that is happening? God moves in powerful ways still today. And it filled everyone with a sense of awe to the extent that if I was to start to tell you about one of these times I've seen this happen, I can't speak of it because I fall short of words about what God had did, done, what he did. It falls short. Words don't do it justice. I had no words that day. I have no words today to describe one of these times in particular. I saw hundreds of men, I can say this much about it, hundreds of men, hardened criminals, in a prison come to faith at one time. And I know the genuineness of it because I got to go back there a year later. And we all remembered what happened that day. We all remembered. We were filled with a sense of awe. That's what's being spoken about here. 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. They are filled with this sense of God is at work in our midst because he saved us. And we're connected through this salvation. It's a beautiful thing. Notice that they did not work themselves up to this sense of all. They didn't work themselves up to it. They didn't work it up like if I was to right now try to work us up into that, right? It came upon every soul. It came upon them. This is the place where the facts have formed their feelings, not the other way around. The reality has caused them to have these feelings of awe. I'm thinking of two potential dangers in the reading out of context of a verse like this one. The first one is to go in pursuit of this feeling of awe or this sense of fear or this reverence, trying to reproduce it. Went to some, to some weird kind of religious temple. I don't even know what type of religion it was, but I got to go. It was bizarre. 
And there are these guys there, and they were trying to work people up into this. And you were told to look at this and listen to this and to experience this and to take your shoes off. They're trying to create this atmosphere. That's not what's happening here. This is a work of God. 3,000 people have come to faith in Christ, and they are filled with a sense of awe based on reality. They're not trying to work something up in themselves. God has done a work. In this religious temple thing that I went to, they were trying to create some sense of wonder. And to be blunt, it was a joke. It was a joke. It was ridiculous. That's, that's one potential danger of looking at a verse like this and taking it out of context. The second one is to suppress any feeling of awe, to be so afraid of the first potential danger that, there are, that the mere mention of feelings with regard to spiritual things, feeling anything at all, becomes suspect. In that, in that case, then awe would be, is replaced with apathy. God saves the whole person body, soul, mind, spirit, completely, entirely. And renews us entirely. He gives us the right feelings about the right things. These guys have the right feelings about the right things. A Holy Spirit-led church is devoted to sound doctrine through which people are saved. Jude writes and says... I wanted to write to you about this, but I felt the need to write to you and tell you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. There was a faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. There's not multiples. There's not 15 different ways to God. There's the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. I believe... And you have come to believe what has been handed down. It's the same gospel. If someone says they have another gospel, don't believe them. A spirit-led church is devoted to sound doctrine, to the true gospel. A spirit-led church is devoted to fellowship. A spirit-led church is devoted to the breaking of bread, where we remember his body and His blood that was shed for us on the cross. We proclaim His death until He comes. A Spirit-led church is devoted to prayer. They pray together, learning how to leave behind all that is petty and unbecoming, learning how to trust in God together, and learning to see His hand at work. I asked a question a few weeks ago. You may not remember it, but the question was this. I remember it. It went something like this. I don't remember it exactly, probably. Just that I remember it, and I'm not sure I do, right? It went something like this. If God was at work here, if the Holy Spirit was at work, would you be able to recognize it? And if you recognized it, would you be able to speak about it without distorting it, without claiming God was doing something that He wasn't doing? A Spirit-led church is devoted to prayer. They pray together, learning how to leave behind what is petty and unbecoming, learning how to trust in God together, and learning to see His hand at work. And the result is, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. I mentioned to you an experience I had where I saw hundreds of people on more than one occasion, multiple hundreds, come to faith in Christ. 
I recognized in those moments, I knew at that time that there were hundreds of people here in, in, in America that were praying for us at that time. Specific days, specific hours, specific times. I knew that I'd been praying fervently and the team I was with had been praying fervently, and we prayed together in the morning, we prayed together in the afternoon, and we prayed together before we did anything. We prayed together when we drove, we prayed together when we stepped out of the van, we prayed together when we walked into some place, we prayed together at night, we praised the Lord together. This spiritual focus, this spiritual energy in prayer, guess what? God answers those prayers. They devoted themselves to prayer They devoted themselves to these four things, and everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Point number three, a spirit-led church is led, a spirit-led church has an active participation, rather, an active participation Verses 44 and 45. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. They had a corporate devotion to one another. In this, it seems that there was a 100% participation rate. A 100% participation rate. I want to say right now, this is something that marks this church. Other people have mentioned this about this body of believers right here at North Valley on multiple occasions, and I praise the Lord for that. There is this massive participation rate when this church is involved with anything. I heard it often, and I heard it again just last week, and I praise the Lord for that. But there are these words in these two verses, 44 and 45, this word together, Verse 44, and all those who had believed were together in this word in common. Verse 44, and they had all things in common. And then in verse 45, there is this word sharing. And they began selling their property and possessions, and they were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. They were together, they were in common, and they were sharing. A few words about this. They did this voluntarily. They took care of needs. In other words, they did it voluntarily. They weren't forced to do it. This isn't communism where the government comes and says, you do this, you produce this, and we take X. You know, this isn't this. They did it voluntarily. They took care of needs, not wants, not felt needs, real needs. This was done within the body of believers. We're to do good to all men, especially to the household of faith. This was done within the body of believers, and it was done as it was necessary. They were not forced to provide wants to everyone who was dictating, do this. If we got this wrong, instead of a spirit-led church, you'd end up with a dictator-led commune. Or on the other extreme, instead of uh, having things in common, you end up with, instead of things in common, you end up with indifference. There are 3,000 new believers. Some of them at this time would be pilgrims, right? They've come in for this feast. Where would they find the necessities of life while they're being discipled in their newfound faith? The church stepped up and ministered to one another. What a beautiful picture. And that's that's what the church does still today. We're looking today at a spirit-led church. 
Spirit-led church has the right priorities and has a constant devotion to the essentials. And those essentials are the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The Spirit-led church has a powerful presence of God that is recognizable among them. So they're filled with this common reverence or this common awe. They all experience it. Spirit-led church has this wonderful participation. They had a corporate devotion to one another. And a spirit-led church, to the last point, has a daily persistence. They have a continual practice. That's our last two verses. Day by day, it says, continuing with one mind. Day by day. 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 That sounds repetitive, right? That's what they were doing. Day after day after day after day after day after day. Just being faithful. And it's a joy, isn't it? That's, that's where the real stuff happens, isn't it? That's where, the, that's where the good stuff is. Day after day after day after day of faithfulness. Probably all of us have been privileged to be around at some point in our life people who had set this example for us. And now it's our turn to do the same thing. Day after day after day after day after day. Persistent. Persistent in the things of the Lord. Day by day continuing. What a statement. And what a need today. Just keep on keeping on. They had persistence in a few things here. They had a persistent mindset. They were of one mind in regard to spiritual life and the truths that they are now living out. They had a persistent mindset. Day by day, continuing with one mind. Doesn't mean they all like the same food. Doesn't mean they all like the same kind of clothes. It means they had the same mindset with regard to the truths of Scripture. They had the same mindset. They were focused on the same thing. They were focused on Christ. They were persistent in gathering together. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. That's where they gathered. They were still gathering in the temple. They are consistent and persistent in gathering together. They are persistent in communion and breaking bread from house to house. They are persistent in communing together, communion together. They are taking their meals together. With gladness and sincerity of heart, they are persistent in joy and in sincerity of heart. What a mark of a spirit-led people, hey? Sincerity of heart. Just sincerity. Just that. That is the most refreshing thing to me. One of the most refreshing things to me about being around God's people is the sincerity of God's people. Just real with each other. Just real. Not airing out all our dirty laundry. I'm not talking about that, but just real with each other. Just open, honest, and real. Real. And confessing sin when we need to. Brother, I'm struggling with this. Will you pray for me? I'm struggling with that. Will you pray for me? Sincerity of heart. Not, not. look, I got shirt and tie on today. I wore a suit last, what, Christmas Eve, right? Got all dressed up. Not the outward show, the inner reality. Sincere with each other. It's got to be the sweetest thing 
one of the sweetest things of being a part of the body of Christ, this sincerity. They're persistent in praise. Day by day, continuing with one with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, comma, praising God. They were persistent in praise. No wonder they were praising God. They had so much to praise Him for. What a joy to be around these kind of people. And they were having favor with all the people, enjoying favor, the favor of all the people, at least for a time, right? We know this isn't going to last. I almost put persistent in favor, but I know that's not going to last. They're going to get it run out of town before too long here. They were persistent in growth. Persistent in growth. And the Lord was adding to their number day, there it is, day by day, day by day, those who were being saved. This persistence in growth was coming from the Lord, though, and the Lord was adding to their number. As they focused on the right priorities, as they were filled with this sense of awe, as they participated in corporate devotion to one another, as they were persistent in these things, the Lord was at work in their midst. What a joy. What a joy. What a picture of a living church, of a spirit-led church. Just a few words on what would be the opposite of that. And then we'll close with a positive. It is possible to be in search of the product without the passion. It's possible to be in search of some product without the genuine passion, without the real deal, right? It's possible to look for fruit without the fidelity. We were reminded in Sunday school this morning the importance of being in God's Word on a regular basis. It's a good reminder. It's possible to have, instead of allegiance to Christ and to one another, to have animosity. Animosity. Instead of awe, apathy. Instead of having things in common, there's indifference. Now I'm reading those things, the negatives, because I recognize as I, as I put them together, it may be in some little corner of our heart that this has started to fester in some way because, not because we would want it to, not because we set out to say, hey, I think I'm going to harbor animosity instead of allegiance. I'm going to just live in apathy instead of awe in what God is doing. I'm going to be in search of some product but not have any passion in doing it. I'm going to neglect fidelity and I'm going to pursue fruit in some other way. We wouldn't set out to do that. But when we back away from the devotion of these simple things, I think it happens to us. I think it happens to us. I do. So in a positive, just a reminder, us Holy Spirit-led church has the right priorities, has a sense of the power of God at work and is filled with awe, is participating full-on, committed to one another, and is persistent in that list of things in verses 46 and 47. 
I don't have much more to say about this than that. I don't know what the Lord will do with it. I hope He'll take it and tune us up because I know not all of us have arrived. None of us have arrived perfectly. And I know we always need tuning up. So I'm hoping the Lord will take this and just tune us up a little bit. And we'll go into this new year and we'll see God at work in mighty ways. Hey, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for this church family, North Valley Bible Church. Thank you for those things that are said about them, that of this body, that are representative of these things that this uh, first century church uh, was involved with, Father. I pray that you would grow us, build us up, uh, help us to excel still more, and uh, help us to find ourselves praising you as we see what you do. In Jesus' name, amen.